0: Let me give you, first of all, a, a summary of the message. And even though it's only going to be about a minute in length, that doesn't mean, though we'll summarize it all, that we are finished. We have a ways to go. Good bit of ground to cover. But here's here it is. Jesus calls you and me to serve together and to be faithful to one another, to be faithful, to be pure for one another's sake. That's verses 1 and 2. And to be faithful to forgive when we are wronged. That's verses 3 and 4. He tells us that as we serve together, even as we have just a small, even a tiny faith, as long as that faith is genuine, He may choose to use it to accomplish glorious things for His glorious name. That's verses 5 and 6. And if he chooses to use us to do glorious things, all we can say is, Lord, we are unworthy and we praise your name. And that's verses 7 to 10. So let's look at the first few verses. Let's read them together. Hear the word of the Lord. And Jesus said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. It is inevitable that we will sin against one another. Temptations to sin are sure to come, Jesus says. There are going to be small offenses and there are going to be grievous offenses. You know, the, the New Testament picture is of a, an assembly, a community of pe- people whose lives are so intertwined by the gospel, and we are so close together in Christ that we begin to wear on each other. We are so close together in following Jesus that it does take its toll. There is going to be sin. You can certainly expect it and you need to be prepared for it and you need to thicken up your skin for it. There's going to be small offenses and there's going to be grievous ones. And Actually, in these first couple verses, Jesus is specifically dealing with a most serious, grievous case of sin. The kind of sin that may derail a person's faith he uses, the terminology that he uses for offenses, uh sin here, is the word scandalon. That's where we get our word scandalous. And we, So we're not talking about um, one of those slight offenses. We are talking about a serious level of sin here. Jesus says that it would be better for you for one of those massive millstones that crushed up the grain in the mill to be hung around your neck and you be Drowned at the bottom of the ocean than to cause a disciple to lose their faith. Or to put it another way, it would be better to be hit by a train yourself than to knock another disciple off track or to derail their faith altogether. Uh, Let's look a little bit more closely at this. Um, This thought, first of all, this truth in verse 1 that sin is inevitable but woe to the person by whom it comes is very similar to what Jesus expresses in Luke chapter 22. Listen to these words. Jesus said there, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So in other words, it is inevitable in the plan of God that Jesus goes to the cross, but you don't want to be Judas Iscariot. Thank God that you are not Judas Iscariot. And it's the same thing here. It is inevitable that there will be sins so severe, they hold within them the potential to derail someone's faith. You don't want that to be your sin. It's inevitable to happen through sin. You don't want it to happen through your sin. I believe that specifically Jesus is talking about a persistent pattern of sin in doctrine and or life. Listen to these words that Paul gave to Timothy in First Timothy 4. Paul told Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. So keep a close eye, pay attention to your life, and pay attention to the teaching, that is the gospel. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. That is, if you will hold fast to the gospel and hold fast to holiness, you will help, you will contribute to the building up of the next generation of disciples. So that's what Paul was telling Timothy and vice versa is basically what Jesus was saying. If you don't hold fast to the gospel, if you don't hold fast to holiness, you will not build up the next generation. You may rather serve to bury some of them. Think about this. How many who once professed the Lord Jesus Christ left the faith because the holiness that was promoted within the church wasn't duplicated in the home life of the church members Or how many who professed Jesus left eventually because the church itself tolerated persistent, pervasive, and perverted sin? Or left the faith because the church was lazy to teach sound doctrine? Or how many have left because the church held to the truth, but without love? Now, it is true that if a person is determined to sin, they are overtaken by the desire they are going to use any excuse that they can find to justify their sin. And if they happen to use you as their excuse for sin, let it be by the way you hold to the gospel and by the purity of your life that their excuse sounds like the flattest, lamest excuse that anybody has ever heard. And So Jesus commands us, pay attention to yourselves. That That's the beginning command of verse 3. And it's really the hinge command on which the warnings of verses 1 and 2 and the commands of verses 3 and 4 swing. Okay, This is the hinge command. Pay attention to yourselves. Pay attention to your own life. And pay attention to the life and the teaching of your fellow disciples. Now, a lot of people get scared at this point. Because maybe they, it's because they want to hide or maybe they are just, um, they don't want people to be all up in their business. And that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying to, to stick your nose in your sister's business. He's not saying to, uh, have your brother just randomly tailed, you know, from time to time, you know, pay somebody off to keep track. He's not saying to, uh, have these random audits of their financial accounts or do random drug testing in the church or something like that. That's not what Jesus is saying and there's nothing to fear here. In a a church that holds fast to the gospel and has a true culture of grace, there is nothing to be feared in the commandment, pay attention to yourselves. The New Testament is full of one another commands. And you can't obey those if you're not involved in the local church, by the way. Because the setting for all of the one another commands is an assembly, a local assembly of believers covenanted and gathered together. So we have these one another commands. And what's the dominant theme? What's the whole tone of these commands? They're dominated by the theme of love. Love. And there are dozens of them in the New Testament one another commands. So when Jesus says to pay attention to yourselves, it is not to to be all over someone, not to be in their business. It, you know what I mean. Um, but rather it's about protecting one another in love. Mutual protection for the sake of love. That's what it's about. We're united together, gathered in gospel fellowship, and we're united together for service. And because of the unity that we have in Jesus, it's inevitable that the sin of our hearts is going to come out of our mouths and land on the lives of those who are around us from time to time. It's inevitable. And if it is true, as Jesus says it is, that that there will be severe sins holding within them the potential to derail someone's faith, if that is true, then how much more sure will it be that lesser sins will come. That's definitely the case. That there will be legitimate offenses, not quite in that one class, but between believers, there will be legitimate and grievous offenses. So Jesus says next, after saying, pay attention to yourselves, look back down at verse 3, second sentence, He says, If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The goal in all of this is that we keep together in Christ. Because our Lord is one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit one. His people must be one in him. We must keep together. That's our aim. But sin between us separates. It obstructs the fellowship that God is calling us into. And again, there are, you know, the slight offenses and there are the grievous offenses. There's the kind of offense that may just put up, you know, a little partition. And there's the kind of sin that builds a wall. And sometimes, in these cases, rebukes are necessary. Now, some people are itching for a fight. Not not, um, not many people, but some. And we need to ask ourselves, okay, when is it necessary to actually verbally, to the face, rebuke a fellow believer? It's not when personalities clash. It's not when we have different preferences in music. How could you like that song? You know, that kind of thing. It's not necessary then. It's not necessary to rebuke someone when you feel slighted. When someone hasn't met your expectations or when you're reading between the lines an offense. It's not necessary then. It shouldn't be then that we give rebuke. But there is legitimately... Grievous offense that requires rebuke because it separates believers from one another in Jesus. But the aim of the offended person is so important. The aim is not rebuke. You're look, we must look past the rebuke, but because the word of rebuke is never to be the final word in conflict. The last word goes to forgiveness. And so the aim of the offended person has to be not just to, hey, did, did you see this, what you just did? You put a wall here. It's not to point out a wall. The aim of the offended party is to bring the wall down so that we can stay together in the Lord. And so again, the rebuke is never meant to be the final word on the matter. Forgiveness is. And sometimes where I'm, um, I don't have time to mention them all, but Matthew 18 in particular spells out for us at greater length how this conflict and mutual discipline and so on is to work. So I would recommend to you Matthew chapter 18 if you want to do some more studying up on this. But sometimes it is necessary that the rebuke has to get more forceful. Someone doesn't acknowledge what is an obvious serious sin The rebuke has to be more forceful and more people have to be involved and they persist in the sin. Eventually, the thing according to Matthew chapter 18 has to involve the church. But the the aim is always purity and restoration, reconciliation within the church, that unity in Christ. That's always the aim. And so, our hope must be that the person who hurt me is more clear that I am with him in reconciliation than they were clear that we were apart because of their sin. My hope must be that the person who hurt me is more clear that I am with him in our reconciliation than he was clear that we were apart because of his sin. Now this brings up an old person tendency. And I, by old person, I don't mean elderly person. I don't mean 82-year-old tendency. That's not what I mean. I, I, I mean the old person outside of Christ. I mean the old nature, the sin nature. We all have this tendency within the the face of criticism and rebuke. What is the tendency? To fight or flight? To go to war or to withdraw. You know, the the, the spectrum that exists in, in conflict and how people respond to it. Why are we this way? We forget. I think this is the key reason. We forget who we are in Christ. And there is no rebuke for sin that can threaten the believer's identity In Christ. Rebuke can't do that. Rebuke cannot lower who you are in Jesus. Sin cannot change who you are in Christ. You are no less justified in the Lord in the rebuke than you were justified in the Lord before you committed the sin that deserved the rebuke. Remember Romans chapter 8. I I saw Bill's Bible that he used for the last several years of his life, Fellowship Paul, yesterday. Romans eight one written all over the place. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul would later argue because of who we are in Christ. At the end of chapter eight, he said, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is there to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died. Now that does not mean that I don't need rebuking. Sometimes I need great rebuking but I am no less righteous in Christ. I am no less in Christ. But how will I perceive rebuke? How will I perceive rebuke or criticism or anyone pointing out my need to improve in some area or another if my sense of self-worth is made up of anything less than what's eternal and heavenly? If my sense of self-worth is made up of my last name or my morals or my achievements, or how I appear to people, how will I perceive rebuke or criticism then? I will see it as a threat. How will I respond? Defensively? Fight or flight? Unless I know absolutely who I am in Jesus why must we save face? And I know how natural and quick we are to to, to be this way. In fact, last week my wife—not <laughs> about to complain, really—she she, um, she uh, saw a need to rebuke me, and it wasn't a mild rebuke, but it was not certain. It wasn't a harsh rebuke, that's for sure. And it was an accurate one. It was actually about me being overly opinionated and how I share those opinions, especially when my children are around. And I knew right off the bat that she was right. But I acted um, dismissively, if dismissively is a word. I acted uh, defensively. I mean, I didn't yell or, you know, but I... Laughed it off a little bit. I tried to defend myself with, you know, but uh, she was right and I was wrong and I needed that rebuke. But when, when you're rebuked, how, how, what's your first feeling? Do you get flush in the face? Get a little, uh, knot in your gut? How do we respond? To dismiss whatever the person is saying or to, to criticize them? Well, you, um, or do we just act all defensive? Your sin does not reduce you in the eyes of God. You are in Christ. So why must we make out like we are more, like we are better? Now, can I... I don't need to ask can I say something to you, because whether you want me to or not, I'm going to say it to you. For the sake of your soul, And for the sake of our unity in the Lord. I'm not telling you to like rebuke or criticism. But you know, we should be so determined to mature in Christ that though we may not like it, we welcome it. We welcome it gladly. Because if we are so self-sensitive and thin-skinned that People can't tell us what is wrong in our lives or a need for improvement or whatever. You know what's going to happen? People are going to keep their mouths shut. And what's going to happen beyond that is we are not going to grow. We're not going to mature. We're not going to progress individually or together if our brothers and sisters cannot rebuke us in the Lord. You see, when we are rebuked, when it's done in the right way. It is not intended to build a wall between you and the other person. It's not intended to build up a wall, but to build up you and to tear down any walls that are there. That's the intention. Something else Jesus says that we need to pay attention to is, um, we need to be, uh, we need to be patient with aff- offended people Everywhere, be patient with offenders. Because it's going to happen that the offenses will be repeated. Okay? And I I know that our initial tendency is to think, well, if they repeat what they did, you know, obviously they weren't actually sorry. Obviously they didn't repent in the first place. He did that thing again? Yep, sure did. Why are we surprised? I mean, is there any heart sin? For which you have repented that you have not repeated? Covetousness, lust, cross the spectrum of lust, anger, pride. Is there any sin, any of those heart sins for which you have not had to go back to the Lord again and again saying, Lord, I confess my sin and I turn from my sin. And the Lord is not there saying, you weren't there, you weren't sorry the first time. He's not, you know, over the, the Lord's table. It's not the Lord's table today. The Lord's table saying, he, He's not over that saying, look at all the repeat offenders. Come on! He's not that way. He welcomes us back to the table. He receives our humility and the confession and repentance away from sin with a glad heart. And because of His justice, He is faithful to forgive and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So, this is just, um, this just goes with the territory of what we're doing together. You know, we're, we're in it for the long haul together. Perhaps believers in the first days of the church thought that Jesus was going to come back within a couple months or so. But we have found out. We don't know when. We cannot be certain. And though we are nearer to our salvation than when we first believed, we are in it for the long haul together. It's not a hop and a skip and a jump to glory. And so forgiveness, sin is inevitable, and forgiveness for repeat offenses just goes with the territory. Well, quickly, we're running out of time, but let me hasten on to verses 5 and 6. The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith, And the Lord said, if you had, and it could be translated have, if you had or if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. Jesus commends mustard seed-sized faith. There's something I want to explain to you that gets me pretty excited So I'm going to take the time to say it. I want you to pay attention, though. Be alert, because I think you'll, I mean, you can't just drift off and get this. Doesn't God require perfection? And doesn't He, therefore, require perfect faith? And the answer is yes, absolutely. God never lowers the bar. Just as God requires perfect holiness, be holy as I am holy, and requires perfect love, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And He requires perfect worship in spirit and in truth. So God requires perfect faith. So what is going on here? If Jesus can commend mustard seed sized faith, doesn't it sound like He is lowering the bar? No, this is Jesus being who God is as He is God. He is being gracious. So listen to me. I want you to understand something. My faith response to God is really, it's a package deal. And whenever I respond to God, whenever I offer, whenever I relate to God, there is going to be what is mine and there is going to be what is of the Spirit. And what is of me, what is of the flesh, is going to be doubts and misgivings and fears, Unbelief. And what is of the Spirit will be faith. And so God, what does He do? He doesn't disregard the doubts and the misgivings and the fears, the, the unbelief. He doesn't just ignore it. He forgives it. And the faith that is of the Spirit, He receives it as true faith. And He is worshipped And he is pleased. And the amazing thing about this is this. What comes from my life that is of the Spirit? Like Paul said, it was not me. He said, I worked harder than any of them. But it was not me, but God, his grace in me. But the amazing thing is that when it's of him, he calls it mine. It is of the Spirit. He worked it in me, but He calls it mine. My faith. So there is that mixture and there is that mixture of faith and and disbelief. And You know the prayer of Scripture. I don't know how many times I've heard Betty mention this prayer. I believe, Lord. Help my unbelief. I don't think that uh, Jesus is trying to you know, um disparage the disciples or, or put them down here, really, I think he is encouraging them with an incredible truth. Even if you have tiny faith, if it is genuine faith, it is of him and it's in him and it is to him and he may use it to change the world if it so pleases him. And that's not to get you all amped up about you, passionate about you. That is to get you passionate about the Lord and how gracious He is. And that is to encourage you to trust in Him and cling to Him and hope in Him no matter how you're being assailed by the circumstances of life. You hope in Christ. If that faith is genuine in Him, He may use it to change the world. And mustard seed size. He so he's saying, look back there and our uh, five-year-old present in there, he's off to sleep now. This is what the Lord is saying. If you're at the beginning of your life, or you're going to die tomorrow, God may use you today if you will but trust Him if you'll trust Him. Now, what if the Lord did use you, did use us, little old Oz Chapel, to change the world? Well, two things. Number one, awesome. And two, so what? And the so what part is, if God uses you to do glorious things for His glorious name, He doesn't owe you anything and you still deserve nothing at all. What we need to understand, for all of you who are you've been serving the Lord for a long time. And you're tempted to to throw in the towel from time to time. You ask yourself, is this worth it? I do the same thing over. And this is what the Christian life is, really. It's the same thing. Over and over and over again. That's why I said before, there is no secret to the Christian life. It's the same. One, once, one person said that discipleship is a long obedience in the same direction. I think that's pretty accurate. It's just a long obedience in the same direction. And sometimes we are tempted to quit, but remember this truth. You have ministry from the Lord. It's a mercy from God. That's a mercy. Listen, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 1. Paul wrote, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Ministry is a mercy from the Lord. So let's actually read verses 7 to 10 here quickly. Jesus says, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? It's a rhetorical question happening here. He is saying, okay, if the master comes home from his work and the servant comes in from the field from his work, At the same time, who is going to serve who? Is the master going to wait on the servant and then wait on himself? Or will the servant prepare himself and wait on his master and then also serve himself? And the the answer is obvious here. And then the second part of that is... um, does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? And Jesus is not discouraging social curse, courtesy or everyday politeness. He is simply making this point. He's not owed anything. He simply did what was expected. There's a lot that I, more I wanted to say about this, but I, I simply don't have the time. Let's get to verse 10. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. This does not mean that the the Lord will not lavishly reward us in glory in the coming age. He will. In fact, Jesus promised that when the Master returns back to the estate from which He has long been absent, And He finds servants who are awake and faithful. He said the Master will have them recline at table and He will wait on them. So we have that promise. This particular commandment is concerning life in this age. Jesus is not saying we won't be rewarded. We will be lavishly in the age to come. We will have great reward. But we should not expect that. We should not demand that now. And listen, we will never deserve what God gives to us of grace. God will never be indebted to you. He will never be indebted to you. He does not owe you, and He never will owe you. And so, all we can say, no matter how much we give to the Lord in service and lay down in sacrifice for His name, we are unworthy servants. That we are able to serve is grace from God. This ministry that we have from the Lord is a mercy from Him. So Lord, I'll praise to You. You owe me nothing at all. I'll praise to Your glorious name. If You use my sesame seed-sized faith to do glorious things for Your name, I am simply an unworthy servant. All praise to you. You and I are the co-workers of God. It's a fascinating, amazing statement in the scriptures. First Thessalonians three two, if you need the biblical proof, and you should require the biblical proof. Because it is such a statement. Like what? Sure? You sure about that? But we are the co workers. Workers of God in the gospel in Christ. So it's no wonder that we say that we have ministry. Being co-workers of God is a grace from Him. And it's a mercy from Him. And this is just one of the myriad upon myriads of blessings that we have in this present age. No, God doesn't owe us. But He has poured on us lavish grace. So here it is again, the summary of this passage. Jesus calls you and I at Ald's Chapel to serve and to serve together. We are to be faithful to one another. We're covenanted together. And we are to be faithful to be pure for one another's sake. That we don't lead another into sin. And we are to be faithful to forgive each other when we have been wronged. And if God would be pleased to use the mustard seed sized faith of Ald's Chapel for glorious things, then all we can say is, Lord, we are unworthy and we praise your name. Let's pray. Lord, you are good to us. Oh, we don't deserve any good from your hand. But you have poured out on us more grace, more depth of grace than we can ever measure. It astounds us, Lord, that even though our sin abounds and we know it abounds, Your grace abounds all the more. And we are looking to Your grace not only to justify us, not only to declare us righteous in Your court, but to make us righteous. Conform us to the righteousness of Jesus. That's what we want and that's what you have promised. And so that's what we are boldly asking you for. Would you please plant your word down deep in our hearts to change our lives, not for us, but to your name be the glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.